In this episode, I'm joined by an amazing guest, and we are talking about food and restaurants in Washington, D.C. If you're a longtime podcast listener, you'll recognize the guest because she's joined me on the podcast before. But the last time we talked was back in 2019. Obviously, that was in the before times, and a lot has changed in D.C. since COVID, especially with regard to restaurants. This episode was a lot of fun to make. I asked about how the restaurant scene has changed since COVID, what's going on with service fees, how to find the best restaurants right now, whether you can trust influencers or content creators like me for recommendations, and even if Georgetown is a hip dining neighborhood again. I know that for many people, quote unquote, eating your way through a city is one of the highlights of travel and exploring a new destination. So I hope you'll get some value from this episode and eat some good food when you visit. And with that said, let's get started. Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob and this episode's special guest. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. If you want to check out any show notes from this episode, listen to other episodes, or learn about Trip Hacks DC guided tours, you can do all of that over at TripHacksDC.com. Today, I am joined by Jessica Sidman. Jessica is the food editor for Washingtonian Magazine, where she covers the people and trends behind DC's food and drink scene. She was my guest back in episode 13, where we talked about food and restaurants in the before times. So, Jessica, welcome back to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Absolutely. So I think the big question that's perhaps on everyone's mind is the last time we talked was before COVID. And how's the restaurant scene changed in D.C.? Is it substantially different, slightly different or maybe not at all different? What do you think? Yeah, I want to say slightly different. You know, I think um, over the years, D.C. has increasingly gained this reputation as a real foodie town. Um, You know, we have the Michelin Guide here. We have such a wide variety of international cuisines, fine, you know, great fine dining, um, great casual restaurants, everything. Uh, You know, obviously, COVID changed restaurant everywhere. You know, I don't think DC is unique in that way. I would say, you know, maybe unfortunately for visitors, um, the one of the biggest changes is it, it is a lot more expensive. Mm. And again, you know, I don't think that's necessarily unique to DC, but you have obviously inflation and just the increased uh, price of goods from supply chain issues. Um uh, another big thing is just increased labor costs. We have a new law that's uh, underway here in D.C. to raise the tipped minimum wage. So, uh, yeah, you're you're going to you might have a little bit of sticker shock, if I'm going to be totally honest, at, at a lot of places. But, you know, you can still find uh, some good cheap eats as well. I think that's accurate to my experience as well. It feels like a lot of the quote-unquote best restaurants in D.C. right now are more towards the high end of the spectrum than maybe the middle or the lower end of the spectrum. And I feel this even in terms of like the food halls that are opening, places where it used to be like a slightly fancier food court. It's now like a 
slightly less fancy, fancy restaurant, if that makes any sense. Is is that kind of your take uh, observation as well? Yeah, I do think, you know, a lot of the upscale casual restaurants, if you will, have refocused and become more fine dining. Um, and, you know, the, the affordable restaurants have become a little more upscale casual. Uh, I know when people visit DC, they tend to stay in DC. But if you are looking for really great restaurants, maybe on the more affordable end, uh, you know, there are so many rich immigrant communities in the suburbs as well, you know, Ann and Dale for Korean food, Rockville for Chinese food. Um, and that's where you, you can get a, maybe a little bit of a better deal and, uh, you know, explore different aspects of, of, of this region. Yeah, I actually did that myself recently. Something I didn't really do before COVID, but I took the metro from the city way out to the end of the line and ate at a really pretty highly regarded restaurant in one of those locations. Now, I don't know if this is something that if you only have a limited amount of time in DC, I would necessarily advise to do. But for someone who's maybe here for a week or uh, wants something a little bit different than what's in the city, that could be uh, an option as well. Have there been any notable closings since COVID? Any place that you were really shocked or disappointed that didn't make it? Yeah. Um, you know, the one that really sticks out in my mind is um, a modern Filipino restaurant that was called Bad Saint in the Columbia Heights neighborhood. And this was just this kind of hole in the wall gem. Uh, you know, at its height, uh, there would be lines down the block, uh, people trying to get, get in, they didn't take reservations, you know, it was named one of the best new restaurants in America by various national media. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it really helped put Filipino food on the map. And, you know, it, because it was such a small space, it wasn't, it's just one of those spaces that, you know, it it wasn't really geared toward the pandemic. Like they did put out a little uh, streetery out there, but, you know, it, I mean, it's meant to be an intimate space. Um, and they, they never uh, reopened their dining room. And eventually they just decided, you know, this this isn't going to work. We're just going to close altogether. I remember when the news of that closing happened, I was quite surprised. And I'm afraid to say I never got a chance to go myself. But that was a trend in the before times, which were these restaurants that didn't take reservations and you would have to stand outside and line up. And another one that I did attend was Rose's Luxury. I remember having to stand out in the cold for over an hour for a table at this restaurant. So is that something that's changed since COVID as well? The concept of the no reservation restaurant is maybe a thing of the past? Right. Well, actually, the one you just mentioned, Rose's Luxury, they do now accept reservations. So you you don't have to wait out on the sidewalk anymore. But, you know, yeah, there are still a handful, you know, there are still some no reservation spots. But I think for the most part, you know, you can get a reservation. Um, You know, most places are either on resi or open table. And you know, a lot of time, even if they're booked up, I, I, you know, if you really want to go to a place, go early and walk in, you know, even some of the top restaurants that book out um, weeks in advance, you know, you can s- sneak in if you get there, you know, on an off day or an early hour or, or later at night. 
and maybe you're willing to sit at the bar. So I, I, you know, I would definitely try that as well. Yeah, I've been trying to advise people generally who are visiting DC to get as many reservations and bookings in as early as you can, because a lot of things, not just restaurants, but even to go to the Air and Space Museum now requires a free advanced reservation. So I'm just trying to tell people to pick the places you want to go to the extent that it's possible and get reservations as early as you can. But it's good to know that there are places where if you didn't or you forgot or you just want to try something different, that there's options. Absolutely. Another thing you mentioned kind of in passing that I want to ask about is streeteries, I think. I don't know who who coined that term. I do like that term, though. <laughs> this is definitely a pandemic phenomenon where people were nervous to sit inside, but they were happy to sit outside. And so a lot of restaurants set up these elaborate, somewhat elaborate systems of tables and chairs and things in front of the restaurant, not just on the sidewalk, but in the street as well, probably where they got that term streeteries. So are these still going strong or are these starting to come down? What's what's your take on the trend of the streetery? Yeah, a lot of them are still there. Uh, you know, I think we'll see going forward whether DC continues to allow them. But for now, yes, that's the case. And a lot of these restaurants have really invested heavily in their streeteries. You know, it's not just like some partition and random metal chairs and tables. Uh, some of these spaces are, are, are beautiful. I mean, they're, you know, semi-permanent structures now and with plants and lighting and, and great furniture. So it's, you know, you, you can get a lot of ambiance uh, <laughs> in a lot of these outdoor spaces. Um, and, uh, and yeah, yeah. So I, I think they're, they're around for the near term and, and, Hopefully for the long term, we'll see. I was surprised because over opening weekend for Major League Baseball opening weekend, there's a restaurant bar outside of Nationals Park, Tap 99, and they were building a brand new streetery in 2023. And so I thought, oh, well, these all got built in 2020 and they'll slowly start coming down. But some are still getting built even in 2023. So that's definitely an interesting thing that I noticed. And I don't know if that's the case in every neighborhood, but at least in some it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you are a restaurant, um, that's a great way to expand your your footprint, your business. How many more extra tables is that? And, you know, on a nice day, who doesn't want to sit outside? So you're seeing a lot of places continue to invest in their their outdoor options. Now you go to restaurants more than I do, I think. And <laughs> so I've I've noticed some things, but I'm curious as more of a restaurant professional what you've noticed as well. How would you say the general vibe uh, at restaurants has changed over the past few years? Ooh, that is a tricky tricky question. You know, I think because as I was mentioning, things have gotten more expensive and and I do think people are just generally not going out as much. A lot of restaurants, you know, they really want to make their experience feel like a special occasion, like a big night out. In some cases, you know, that that might mean, you know, like they've converted to a tasting menu, like they want people to go all in. In other cases, it might be just something more more light, like, uh, you know, I feel like uh, you know, disco balls are really in right now in DC restaurants. Like, you see restaurateurs really trying to make their spaces fun. You know, for, for a long time, it felt like serious dining was very serious, if if that makes any sense. Like the space had to be serious. And I do feel like there's a sense, especially, you know, 
in the wake of the pandemic, like people want to let loose and restaurants want to give them a space to celebrate again and literally just have fun. That's a really interesting observation that I hadn't really thought about, but I do tend to agree with. I do feel like restaurants do just feel more relaxed, it definitely on the high end, at least. No, I, yeah, no, I think it's really at all levels. And, you know, exactly what that looks like can vary. But, you know, yeah, like I was at the disco balls, uh, neon, neon signs, you know, a lot of over the top decor, a lot of color, you know, it, it just it feels exciting a lot of times. And the other thing you mentioned is the chef's tasting menu, which I have to admit, I'm a bit of a sucker for these because I get horrible buyer's remorse when I go to a restaurant with a big menu. And I always feel like, man, should I have gotten something different? I don't know. But I do like the chef's tasting menu because you just sit down and the chef presents you whatever he or she is making that day. And then you just feast. Uh, So I know they're more expensive, but I, I do really quite like them. Absolutely. And, you know, there are some um, affordable versions in town. You know, one of one of the more affordable ones that I love is Nina May in the Shaw area, which is actually very close to the convention center also. And they do a chef's tasting, which it's only $55 per person, which, you know, is pretty cheap in terms of tastings. Um, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six family style courses. And, you know, this is a true feast and a lot of local seasonal ingredients. You know, when you go there in spring, it feels like spring with, you know, the fresh asparagus and, 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 you know, whatever's in season, you know, if you are looking for a more affordable kind of tasting a little bit more on the casual end, but also really high quality, that's worth checking out for sure. I've actually been to Nina May and done the tasting and I agree with you. It is delicious and legit. So excellent uh, recommendation there. Yeah. And I think it a brunch, they do brunch too, where I think it's only $35 per person. Now I want to ask about Georgetown because when we recorded episode 13 back in 2019, you said Georgetown was not a place with a lot of hip restaurants or a place where you would go out to find the best places to eat. But before we get to your updated thoughts on Georgetown, let's take a quick break. If you're listening to this podcast, my hunch is that you're probably planning an upcoming trip to Washington, D.C., or at least dreaming about a future adventure. One thing I've learned from meeting thousands of travelers and doing a bit of traveling myself over the years is that experiences are usually the best memories from a trip. That's why I started Trip Hacks DC. I didn't just want to create content to help you plan a trip, but also to provide an amazing experience once you arrive. And I think it's worked because people tell me all the time that their Trip Hacks DC tour was the highlight of their trip, and that really makes me happy. So if that's something that sounds up your alley, You can head over to TripHacksDC.com to learn about taking a private tour with me or a public group tour with one of the amazing TripHacksDC tour guides. And we're back. So what's the deal with Georgetown's dining scene in 2023? Is Georgetown hip again? I think Georgetown might be hip again. Yeah, Uh, you know, it's 
kind of had this reputation as, you know, like a tourist destination or, you know, you had a lot of money or you were a student, you would hang out there. You know, I think there were a lot of, a lot of chains and, and, you know, because it is expensive real estate, a lot of up and coming chefs, they weren't really looking at Georgetown. But I do think the pandemic provided a kind of reset button in a way for the neighborhood where, you know, some of those rents um, did come down and there were actually a lot of vacancies. And so you have um, some exciting new concepts moving in. One that I love uh, is Yellow, um, which is a uh, kind of Middle Eastern Levantine cafe and bakery the chef who operates it, Michael Rafiti, he also has a lovely restaurant uh, in Navy Yard that's a little bit more upscale. But at Yellow, you can find pastries and pita sandwiches, and it's just delicious. Another kind of big name, splashy restaurant that's coming to Georgetown is an Italian restaurant and marketplace from uh, Steven Starr, who is a, you know, big name restaurateur. He owns a very popular French restaurant in DC called Le Diplomat, as well as some very buzzy restaurants in New York and Philadelphia, where he's from. And he's teaming up with Nancy Silverton, very famous California chef, um, and they're going to do this big, you know, I think it's like a $10 million project right in the heart of Georgetown. So that's definitely going to be one to watch. And I have to ask you this, apologies in advance, because people ask me this. Are people still lining up for cupcakes in Georgetown? <laughs> you know what they are. I, I still I still see people lining up there, but... Any local will tell you, don't go to Georgetown Cupcake, go to Baked and Wired, which just uh, a few blocks away, but I personally think offers superior cupcakes. Well, I think perhaps now any local will tell you, go to Yellow the Cafe and get pastries there instead of cupcakes. That's true. But if you really want cupcakes, uh, Baked and Wired is your jam. Now, another article you wrote recently that kind of speaks to this change in how restaurants are operating now is there are service fees at many of them. And I think I'm curious to know, and many people are probably curious to know when you get your bill and it has the service fee included on there, what is this? What is this service fee? What have you been able to investigate about these? Right, right. Um, So DC residents uh, passed this ballot measure last fall uh, called Initiative 82. And it will increase the tipped minimum wage in DC. So basically the way it works now is as a diner, you are essentially subsidizing the bulk of um, a server or bartender's base wage through, through your tips. And now DC will phase out that system so that Instead, the employer pays the full minimum wage. And this is a change that will happen gradually over the next five years. Essentially, what this all means is that restaurants are tripling their labor costs and they have to make up that amount of money somehow. How they're doing that is 
service fees. So what you'll see in DC a lot of times is a fixed fee at the bottom of your check, usually around 20%. It can kind of range. Sometimes I'd say most of them are in the 18 to 22% range. I think generally, if you see that, you're not expected to tip. Um, Oftentimes there's a tip line nonetheless from talking to people in the industry, you know, the feeling is, you know, they, they don't expect people to tip, but if you feel like, you know, it was great service and food, you know, an extra 10, you know, five, 10, 15% um, is welcome, appreciated. But uh, yeah. And again, that's, that's if the service fee is around 20%, I think generally if you can add on, Whatever is going to add up to 20%, that's what is, you know, considered the best etiquette. Yeah, I think what's tricky is that before we kind of generally accepted what the expectation was, whether you liked it or not, you kind of knew what it was. And now it feels like we're not really quite sure. So for example, I went to a restaurant in New York City a couple of years ago and they had a service fee and it was 20%. But then after I gave my credit card to the server, they brought me back a check and a piece of candy and there was no pen. There was no line. There was no nothing. It was just, here's your receipt. Have a good night. And so that seemed like the expectation was very clear. Whereas now it seems like we're kind of relearning, okay, what's the new expectation uh, on top of the service fee if there is one? Exactly. And this is the kind of thing that is also confusing locals. Um, I think just because it's so new and because of this this new law that's going to change the way tipped workers are paid, um, you know, and restaurants responding in a variety of different ways, it, it is very confusing. I mean, I am often confused. But again, I think the general rule of thumb is if there's a 20% service fee, you're not expected to tip extra. You can for a great experience. It's more than welcome. <laughs> you know, I think most people actually, uh, in my experience, uh, do, do not. Okay, that's good to know. And maybe we'll record another podcast episode in three years and we'll look back on this conversation and yes. say, yeah, we nailed it or we totally missed the mark. But for now, that seems like a good rule of thumb, like you said. Okay, yes. And it's, it is a complicated topic. We could probably spend just like an hour or two talking about that. And uh, if you are curious, you, you know, um, look up Initiative 82 um, Washingtonian. We've written a lot about kind of the impact of, of that. Well, moving on in any case, I also want to ask about another trend that I thought might stick around, but I feel like it's not really sticking around quite as much as I maybe had hoped. And that's QR codes at restaurants seemed like at the beginning of the pandemic, when we all started going back and eating outdoors in the streeteries and whatnot, everybody had a QR code. And sometimes it was just to pull up a menu. Sometimes it was to do everything, including pay. And so is it just my observation that they don't seem as common anymore? Or am I just going to places now that never used them in the first place? I actually think QR codes are here to stay. And part of it does have to do with Initiative 82, which I mentioned there are now all of these added labor costs for restaurants and some of them are looking to compensate for that by, you know, how, how can we have fewer staff and QR codes is one way to do that. 
I know <laughs> they're not necessarily always the most popular thing. I, I still I still see them. I still see them all the time. And I, I think that we're going to continue to see them. Now, my opinion, and this is only my opinion, is that when they are implemented well, and that's an important asterisk to put there, when implemented well, they are great. And I say that because I remember the first place I went I think after COVID was to the Brig, which is an exclusively outdoor beer garden. And they had set up this QR code ordering system. And I finished my beer and my food and I just stood up and I left and I didn't have to wait for someone to come get my card and wait for them to bring me back a check and and all of that, which is one of my pet peeves is when I'm ready to leave, I just want to leave. I don't want to have to go through all of that. So that's my opinion. But I'm curious if you have an opinion. I, you know, I have a, I don't hate them as much as some people do. I, I actually, I like them better when you can, like you were saying, order through the QR code and, you know, just do the whole process uh, on your phone. I'm not as much of a fan when it's a nicer restaurant and it's just to look at the menu, you know? Yeah. Because I think a lot of places are just trying to save money by not having to print out menus, which can, you know, be very expensive. Um, but it does take away from that experience, especially if it's a nicer night out and, you know, I think people have different expectations from like a date night versus, uh, you know, the, the beer garden where I think it's, it's great for a beer garden where, you know, you just order on your phone, your beer shows up, you pay, you leave. It's, it's super easy. That's true. Comparing an outdoor beer garden to a award-winning restaurant is a bit of an apples to oranges comparison. Right. One more thing I want to ask about is something we somewhat touched on earlier, which is this concept of things going upscale. You wrote an article about a new food hall opening this summer called The Square. And from everything I can find out about it from your article, from the website, it seems like it's going to be a pretty upscale food hall. And I'm curious how you think that's going to work as we've kind of gotten used to this concept of a food hall being like a slightly better food court. And now it's right going to change a little bit. Yeah, I think absolutely. The food, the food hall has gone fine dining. The the one that you mentioned, it's going to have a bunch of really big name talent. Uh, you know, the chef from a, a Michelin star omakase restaurant opening his own sushi counter, which to be fair, it's going to be a little more casual, but so many, so many different types of food. That's really going to be one to watch. It's not open yet. And the other kind of upscale food hall that just opened that people should really check out is called Love Makoto. It's kind of between Chinatown and Union Station, and it's all Japanese. So they just recently, like in the past week, actually debuted with three full-service restaurants. And there's a sushi omakase restaurant. There's um, a uh, an upscale kind of Japanese barbecue restaurant where you grill at your own table. And they have the top Wagyu from Japan and American Heritage Beef. And then the third restaurant that's open for now is an izakaya that's a little more casual. You don't need reservations there. Uh, And they have grilled skewers and highballs and, you know, kind of izakaya bar snacks. And then uh, the the last component that's actually coming this this summer will be the most casual um, part of the venue, uh, where it is going to be more of that food court 
feel, but with a lot of, you know, uh, really, I guess, artisanal touches, they're going to make their own udon and they're going to make their own soba. Um, There'll be sushi rolls and curries and Japanese pastries that, that that's definitely you know I love Makoto's the opening that I've just been the most excited about this year. I already went to the um, Japanese barbecue restaurant and it was amazing. Um, I you know there's there's just nothing else like it in DC. I felt like I was back in Tokyo again a little a little on the pricey <laughs> side, but the izakaya. I posted up there before my reservation, the couple next to me were just ranting and raving about how great it was. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to going back and trying that as well. And just so everyone knows, we are recording this in May. So by the time you're listening, the food hall, food court type spot might be open, but definitely double check before you go just to make sure. And I also went to Love Makoto. I had the sushi. So between the two of us, we've now, we've covered the whole place. How did you like it? Well, I, uh, I think I've got, I got used to a lot of takeout sushi during COVID. And so I forgot when it's fresh, how good it is. And I actually said halfway through the meal, if this is what it's like in Japan, well, I really got to go to Japan now because it was so good and so fresh in a way that I had almost forgotten sushi can be that fresh because of uh, what I've been eating over the last few years. So yes, excellent, excellent tip there. And I also want to ask, speaking of excellent restaurants, I know that Washingtonian has a new 100 Very Best Restaurants issue now available on newsstands and on the website. And I know that you took a few years off uh, during COVID So this hasn't been published in several years now, but I know it's a huge undertaking for you and your fellow writers. So congrats on getting a new edition out. Thank you. But I'm curious to know what your approach was for the 2023 issue and if you took a different approach or the same approach as in the past. Yeah, so we paused um, our 100 Very Best Restaurants uh, ranking during the pandemic. It didn't feel quite right to be reviewing restaurants. Um, but we felt like the moment was, was right to, to make a comeback this year. Uh, and this is a really a major undertaking by the magazine. We, there, there are four of us who work on it. Um, we revisit every restaurant, every, or not every restaurant in the city, but you know, we revisit all the restaurants featured every year that we're working on the list to have the most up to date, uh, reviews because places really do change a lot year after year. I mean, month after month, day after day too. But I think, you know, one of the big changes is we only ranked the top 25 this year. um, And then the other 75 are unranked. And, you know, I think we tried to take a more holistic approach than maybe we have in years past. And by that, I mean, you know, this, this isn't just a list of the best fine dining, you know, this isn't a Michelin guide, you know, we want to consider the very best hole in the wall taqueria next to the best tapas joint or dim sum restaurant or tasting menu or pasta house. So it's a very eclectic uh, list that I think is really meant to capture the entirety of the dining scene. 
And, you know, I do want to emphasize that this guide is very special because we we do pay our own way. You know, the, the magazine comps our meals. So we try to really take an unbiased approach. This isn't, uh, you know, I think with so many influencers out there these days who are getting free meal, free meals, it's hard to, you know, know what you can trust. You know, we do take very seriously um our independence. And so this is, this is one of the very few resources in the city where I think you can, you can find that. I think that's important. And I'm going to ask more about that uh, shortly, but before I do, I am curious to know, because I know this is a team effort. I I think you said there's four of you who contributes to this project. And so were there any that were your particular favorites that you pushed really hard for to make it onto the list? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all have our favorites, right? And we we go head to head to uh, to champion them. Um, I think for me, one of the ones that 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 I am just really excited about is called Happy Gyro. Oh, okay. And it, I believe it was number four on the list. It's um, a takeout only place that happened to formerly be one of the best fine dining restaurants in DC called Comey. Um, During the pandemic, they shut down their dining room and like everyone else, they pivoted to takeout. Initially, it was kind of this vegetarian only um, Greek deli inspired carryout. Now they've introduced meat back into the equation and uh, you know, it, the menu changes all the time. They do these kind of grandma stuff, or I think they call them grandpa style pizzas, kind of like a, almost like a focaccia crust. And they do like an, the most amazing gyro, gyro, depending on how you like to say it, uh, mozzarella sticks, you know, all these like fun seasonal salads. Uh, and then they also now uh, make their own ice creams and these fun chefy uh, flavors. They have this olive olive oil ice cream with cocoa crumble that I'm just obsessed with. And more recently, they have reopened their dining room as a wine shop focused on natural wines. So you can pop in there, grab a great bottle. They are so, so knowledgeable about wine. I feel like some of the best wines I've had have been recommendations from them. If you if you just want to pick up something, uh, take out, grab a bottle of wine. Maybe maybe you want to have a little picnic. That would be a fun one. I've been curious about the story behind that because in that same location used to be one of my all time favorite restaurants, Little Cero, which I think is a COVID casualty. I don't think it's reopened. Yeah, that yeah. So it was from the same owners. They had a a northern Thai kind of prefix uh, menus in this basement, just the cutest little hole in the wall, spicy, pungent cooking. Uh, And it did close during the pandemic. They were doing takeout for a while, but they have not reopened. And we have not heard any word on what they're going to do with that space. That's a bummer. I did do one of their, I think it was for Valentine's Day, one of their to-goes. And so it's a little sad to me that my last memory might be uh, a Valentine's Day to-go rather than in the restaurant. But that's just the nature of the restaurant business, right? Is places are always coming and going. And Absolutely. 
I want to go back to what you mentioned earlier about uh, how you review restaurants, because you have an article called (laughs) DC's Food Influencer Scene is Booming. It's also a hot mess. And I have to say that as someone who creates content on the internet about Washington, (laughs) D.C., and sometimes I do get called an influencer, even though I do not accept that title, uh, I found this article fascinating. It's probably the best thing I've read all year, uh, to be completely honest. Oh, thank you. So for folks who haven't read it yet, what's what's going on? What has happened over the past two or three years? What? Why is the scene booming all of a sudden? Right, right. Well, I'm sure no matter where you're from, uh, you are no doubt familiar with the Instagram and TikTok influencers. Uh, there are so many of them on so many different areas. But yeah, during the pandemic, this scene, especially at DC, just exploded. So many people posting about restaurants. And I think I think part of it has to do just with the rise of TikTok in general and kind of this FOMO of the dining scene during lockdown. You know, all this is happening at the same time that the restaurant industry is really still recovering. Uh, and a lot of, I think, you know, maybe some people know this, some people don't, but the way a lot of these influencers operate is more like marketing, where um, either they're getting comped meals or they're paid by the restaurants or, or food brands to promote their establishments or products or whatever it is. So, and, and, you know, even though legally they are required to disclose any freebies they get, um, the truth is a lot of times they are not so good at that or they do, but it's not front and center. So, you know, you have all of these influencers who are, you know, trying to either profit off of or support restaurants, depending on your point of view. At the same time that restaurants are trying to make a comeback. And as I say in the story, it's the best worst thing ever. It's either, you know, this huge boon for the industry or, you know, just a bunch of people, a bunch of freeloaders looking for a free meal. And people have have mixed feelings on on this community. No, I can back that up because I am in... I guess, an industry group of tour company owners, TripX DC, at the end of the day, even though I do produce content on the internet, it is a tour company, and that's how over 90% of the business is done. But I am in some groups, and whenever the topic of influencers comes up, it is frequently the case that people will say, these are just people who want something for nothing. They just want a free tour in exchange for an Instagram post or something. And there's not a lot of love uh, among some people in the tour community. And I can't even imagine what the equivalent restaurant owners groups are saying behind the scenes. And maybe you have access to some of those groups and uh, have a peek behind the curtain. I don't know. But at least on my side, it definitely seems like there's some some tension. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is tension and there are, you know, definitely, you know, people have horror stories of of interacting with influencers. But, you know, I was actually surprised in a lot of ways how positively many uh, restaurant owners feel about influencers um, because, you know, it is promotion and um, some of them do have big followings and and can bring in a crowd or at least, you know, 
temporarily, you know, give them a bump. So, you know, even chefs who might talk a little bit of shit about influencers, I don't know, hopefully I can say shit, they still, you know, invite them in for a free meal because they know that this is such a powerful medium. Yeah, that's interesting. I think putting myself in the shoes of a restaurant customer or a traveler, because that's most likely who's listening to this episode is a traveler coming to Washington, D.C., is people have a lot of anxiety about restaurants when they travel because they go on to Washingtonian.com and there's a list of 100 great restaurants they can go to, right? And they say, oh, I'm only going to be here for four days, three meals a day times four, that's 12 meals. How am I going to figure this out? And I think the question um, is, can you trust people who are making content in exchange for a free meal or making content as basically a marketing, you know, promotional person? Do, Do you think you can? Yeah, I mean, I always try to take it with a grain of salt. But at the same time, I mean, even I use influencer content to help me decide where to eat sometimes. Um, Because a lot of times, you know, a restaurant critic can't visit every single restaurant or know about every single restaurant. And so having this bigger community help to bring attention to places that might not otherwise get it. Or even just, um, you know, getting a better feel for the vibe of a place or like what what it looks like or, or certain dishes, you know, maybe I'll read about something. But then I, you know, I'll look on Instagram and I'll see more of a sense of, you know, the decor or, oh, look at the, look how they plate this dish. Isn't that cool? And so it is helpful in that way. I, I wouldn't, you know, if, if an influencer said, oh my God, you have to try this hidden gem. It's the best restaurant I've ever been to. You know, I don't know that I would be, I would say, okay, this is the best restaurant that they've ever been to. But, but, you know, I would, I would see, you'd see the photos and say, okay, well, that looks cool. Like I want to check it out just based on how it looks. Yeah. I, people probably don't know this, but Rob, the person, not Rob from Tripex DC, I post, I post pictures on Google Maps for those fake Google points, you know, that you can earn if you post uh, photos on Google Maps. And they sent me an email recently and they said, you know, 700,000 people have seen your photos. And I thought that's a big number, right? Like that's some kind of influence. Um, So obviously people are seeking out things like I'm going to this restaurant. I want to see what the food looks like. So I can definitely see some value in this sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And one more thing I want to ask you about on this topic is uh, one of the original, the oldest influencers in D.C., this guy named Justin, who used to do an account on Instagram called DC Food Porn. Uh, Don't worry. uh, This is a family-friendly show, so it's (laughs) not that kind. But um, it it seems like you wrote about him recently, and he's not even living in D.C. anymore. It seems like he's moved on to other things. Do you think that what has popped up in the past two or three years will sustain or will many of these accounts go the way of, of that one? Yeah. I mean, you never know, right? Because what, what about what happened to my space, you know? <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I think anytime you're doing something with social media, it, you know, things change so fast. I mean, I'll look at Twitter, so much chaos there. And so, yeah, he, he was one of these OG DC food influencers he used to post these really gratuitous, decadent photos, 
of, you know, ice cream sundaes with a dozen scoops and, and super cheesy grilled cheeses and, you know, truly food porn. Um, and he's kind of pivoted more to healthy cooking videos, <laughs> which you know, I, during the pandemic, you know, well, first of all, a lot of restaurants were closed and, you know, people were cooking at home. So it, it made more sense to do cooking videos. I, you know, I think for him personally, he had some dietary restrictions where he couldn't even eat a lot of those over the top foods that he was posting. So it makes more sense for him. But, you know, I, I, you know, I think, and, and even now, you know, TikTok didn't even exist several years ago. Now, there's, you know, TikTok has just exploded. So everything's changing all the time. I think your article from years back about that account, the DC food porn, where you disclosed that I think the person is lactose intolerant or for some reason can't really eat a lot of the cheese or the dairy or the ice cream that's getting posted. All that, that really kind of opened my eyes to the idea that this isn't just someone who loves these foods. This is someone who's doing this for a specific reason, right? And that's always been in the back of my head when I look at any of the accounts, the newer ones, the older ones, kind of any of them. Right. He he did it because he knew that's what got the clicks. Yep. That's what sells. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for spending some time chatting with me about the updated state of Washington, D.C. restaurants. And you've got the 100 very best restaurants that you created with your co-creators and you've got DC's food influencer scene is booming. It's a hot mess article. Everyone should go read. What else do you want to plug? Oh, gosh. I mean, just head to Washingtonian.com. We are constantly writing about the latest restaurant openings, trends, people to watch out for, you know, guides to, you know, the best wineries or, or breweries or whatever it is. Uh, we have so so many guides. Uh, waterfront eating. Uh, so just head there and you will find no shortage of content. Yes, a bit of a trip hack. I actually have your author page bookmarked. So I go there every once in a while and make sure I haven't missed anything. And oh, thank you. I can keep track of everything. So thanks for that. Thanks for listening to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a Trip Hacks DC guided tour, visit triphacksdc.com.